Welcome to System Mastery, super special custom Ween edition. Today, continuing our tales of not at all terrifying alien stuff, we're going to take a look at something we rarely or never discuss at all. A new game. Yes, it's Teens in Space from Renegade Games, a game that is completely impossible to get an understanding of from the title alone. What could it be about? We may never know. Anyway, it's time to wean it up in standard fashion, uh, because it's the month when that happens. Uh, uh, Octo-ween. All right, let's go. Hey, Mom, there's something in the back room. Hope it's not Those assholes, Jeff and John. You used to read me stories as if my dreams were boring. We all know it's time for ween. Folks, before we get started today, we actually do have a couple of announcement masteries to get through. Now, as you and I and John understand, announcement mastery is available on our website. You can pay us 50 bucks. There's a button that says give us some money. It leads you right to it. And we will read your ad or your message on the air. And it's only going to be 50 bucks until the end of this year. Yes, indeed. Get in now. Well, the get in now good. before I jack up that price, because uh, you can buy them and hold them if you want to. So get in there now, buy a bunch of them, and use them when you need them. I don't know if we're going to 75 or 100 at the beginning of the next year, but it's going up. Mm-hmm. But I've got a couple of them to go through today, so it is time to begin. I'll take the first one, John, if you wouldn't mind taking the second. Sure thing. Here we go. They traded an honorable oath for an avaricious pact, and they have earned my attention. Partisan is a fantasy space opera taking place in the distant future, where the impressive, or oppressive reign of the divine principality looms and encompasses all aspects of life on the holy moon of Partisan. That's also impressive. Using the, new- <laughs> Using the newly released Forged in the Dark game Beam Saber by Austin Ramsey, Partisan blends tense mech combat with the human struggles to cope with violence and the sparks of revolution. Man, I keep hearing about this Beam Saber game. I gotta check this out. Named Best Anime of the Season by Crunchyroll, Partisan is a must-see experience. Partisan is the latest season of Friends at the Table. Oh, I didn't know we were doing an ad for Friends at the Table. Hey, good for them. An actual play podcast focused on critical world-building, smart characterization, and fun interaction between good friends. Find them at Friends underscore Table on Twitter and support them on Patreon at friendsatthetable.cash. Nice. Also... Check out Counter Slash Weight and Twilight Mirage, earlier seasons of Friends at the Table in the same universe, though not required to understand Partisan. And Seasons in Hieron, a three-season, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, <laughs> a three-season fantasy epic, also by Friends at the Table using the Dungeon World system. Find all of these shows and more on the Friends at the Table feed in your podcasting spell ca- application of choice. Awesome. I don't know why I was about to say spellcation. That's not a word. Ah. But there you have it. Uh, our first ad for Friends at the Table. I didn't know that was going to happen. I should probably read these in advance. What do you think, John? Is that a good idea? Probably. <laughs> in this case, I did a little bit of advanced reading. I made sure that partisan, which is spelled with a Z where the S would go, just so everybody knows, uh, is pronounced the same as the word partisan, whether you are describing the spear or the person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I did a little bit of work. But once again, find that at... Uh, what was that? Friends underscore table at Twitter or support them at Patreon at friends at the table dot cash. So that's cool. Thank you so much for your uh, for sending in an ad. And John, I believe you have one as well. Yes, indeed. 
Hello, System Mastery and listeners. Are you craving a little extra mystery in your usual adventure? Could you use a little Agatha Christie in your Dungeons and Dragons? Well, get ready for a night of fantasy, horror, colorful suspects, and a lot of campy eyebrow wiggling in our whodunit, A Stay at the Ursa Manor. Available on the Dungeon Masters Guild, A Stay at the Ursa Manor is a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons one-shot adventure intended for low-level play, though it is still entertaining at higher levels. It's a Mm, mystery, and Lord knows, Dungeons & Dragons was not built for mysteries. But we did it anyway, and pulled it off. (laughs) Sarah is good at that design. Do you have one player at level 1, or six players at level 4? It doesn't matter! Our adventure is robust and flexible enough to handle any variety of party composition. A stay at the Ursa Manor begins with your party finding refuge from a harrowing snowstorm in the home of a newly located nobleman, Urane, the bear, Bumpford, who is currently playing host to several local figureheads as they discuss important matters of land ownership. Things go awry when the party stumbles on a grisly murder. It's up to the party to solve the mystery in a house full of very capable suspects. Can you solve... Let me ask you. Hmm? Is this murder most foul? Mostly foul. Okay, It's mostly good. a murder of foul. <laughs> oh no, someone's killing the Aarakocra. <laughs> Can you solve a clue-styled murder mystery in the world of Dungeons & Dragons? Take a crack at it and find out. The Someday Games team is very proud of this adventure and currently working on its sequel. Thanks so much for checking it out. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can find this, our other title, Stars Above Judica, and the new 5th edition playable class, The Death Knight, on the Dungeon Masters Guild or on our website, SomedayGames.com. That's SomedayGames.com. All right, everybody. SomedayGames.com. That's SomedayGames.com. Not Sunday, right, well, Someday. <laughs> so wait, is it Sunday or Someday? Well, some days it's Sunday, but today it's Someday. Someday. Someday.com with an M and an someday E. Games. And an O and not a U and not an N. And the games. All right. Thank you so much <laughs> for your ads. You've all been wonderful. We'll see you in the real show. Happy Ween! Hello, everybody. The three blessings of Ween to each and every one of you, plus a bonus blessing to my co-host, John. It's me, Jeff. Hi, John. Ooh, I get a bonus blessing. You do. You get a bonus blessing. Although this season, you can only have one blessing. So, uh, sorry. Aw. That, that that was a special baseball joke just for you. <laughs> I, I participated in your fucking thing. My thing. I Yeah, I'm here. I'm here for your thing. I'm here to help. <laughs> here to help my thing. Do you understand? Part yeah. of it. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's going on in baseball. I I have this problem where I'm busy on weekends, and that seems to be when anything interesting happens. Yeah, pretty much. So I don't know what the fuck's happening in there. But I do know that I'm curious how you're doing. I'm doing great. Okay, cool. Great. Glad we're up to speed on all that. Uh, I'm also okay. Nothing exciting going on. It was a boring day. Yeah, I uh, I slept was... and I ate some pie. Sounds wonderful. Uh, I don't remember what I ate. I'm pretty sure I mostly just ate sort of handfuls of loose seeds and tangerines throughout the day. Huh. It was uh, just a we're we're 
we're near a shopping trip is basically what's happening here at my house. Good, good. So I'm eating. I, I, I'm more grazing than eating. Is uh, is my current state? Yeah, I uh, I did pick I got up a- pie because there was a pie sitting out, and I was like, "Ooh, pie." Oh, okay. So when there's a pie sitting out, you just hobo lift towards it and eat the damn thing. Oh yeah, that's that is my way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not me. I wait to establish pie rules. I did pick up a cute little uh, new toy for myself today. Uh, I have a little tiny micro HD projector specifically for casting uh, singing faces onto pumpkins, so that I might surprise my daughter at some point. <laughs> They've gotten aggressively cheap. I got this thing for like just under fifty bucks. Woo! So now I, yeah, now I can I can line pumpkins up next to each other and have them sing the monster mash and stuff with like high definition cartoon glow faces. It's oh, rad. sweet. But can you can you have them sing the uh, the ghost song thing from Haunted Mansion? Uh, probably. Are there pumpkins singing that, or is it like ghosts singing? I that? mean, it's ghost singing it but there's at least the one part of the ride where it's got like uh statue bust heads and then it's projecting them singing onto those so it would be basically like that well i'll tell you what if i could steal that from disney or youtube somehow then the answer is yes i can do that because i have a little baby projector which i'm I'm still not i I bought it just because i thought i'd be able to set up a situation where sage wouldn't notice my normal colossal hd projector Mm, mm. uh which makes the noise well it's like an early generation hd projector so it sounds like a car's on in the same room as it is yeah so this thing is a lot quieter and smaller i hope i hope it will work well so that's what's up with me that's my ween experience hooray what was your ween experience (laughs) your first my ween experience you know pretty dry Mm, yeah okay sounds good so uh i'm not exactly sure what led us to decide to do a uh, a very very new still in print game that's very much outside our, our generic wheelhouse yeah generally but this I, I had good faith in this company i've played one of their other games at one point uh so i figured and we had a good time doing that remember that we did we didn't get a chance to record it but we played a game of uh kids on bikes with uh with network host James Domato up at Big Bad Con last year. Yes, indeed we did. Mhm. It was a ridiculously dumbass game that was a lot of fun. There were uh I guess it's a thing that James does where some of his patrons get to play a game with him like once a year or something. And we were and around so we just sort of got We got to into ruin it. it. Yeah, we destroyed that. Luckily, the people involved who are whatever James's high level donors are i assume they have to give him like blood and three thousand dollars uh they're they were uh, <laughs> they're his top level people uh they were very gracious and friendly and mostly just wanted to hear us be goof goofballs around james yeah but we had a we had a blast it was a fun game so i thought oh well this is like an alien variation on the same thing uh teens in space so why don't we talk about it and finally get a look at how john and i feel about more modern game design yeah like what's going on in the world of game design as opposed to what was wrong with the fucking 80s <laughs> god damn it what is wrong with all of you people <laughs> so uh this seems to be this this renegade studio seems to have a pretty straightforward uh repeating product they the, the book uses the same basic mechanic 
and the same basic stat progression and, and all of that. It's just a, a very s- simple game. The one thing that's really big and different between this and the, and the kids on bikes is the addition of ship control mechanics. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where the book starts as well. But let's get into the premise. You are playing teens in space. Okay, we're done with the premise. Uh, Rule-wise, no, really, that, that seems to actually be the premise of this game. You, uh, It's just sort of, hey, do you know any shows about cool teenagers running around in space doing rad shit? Here's a game you can use to emulate those. Yeah, and it's... I mean, the book goes out of its way to be like, we're not going to tell you exactly you know, how to play teens in space or what it means to be a teen in space. Like there is (laughs) essentially two rules here. One, you should be a teen Two, You should be in space. A lot of the time. Yeah. Not all the time. Just a lot of the time, but a lot. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, I get the idea of where they're going with it. The kids on bikes is supposed to more or less be a stranger thing, sort of pastiche, where this is going to be a collection of all the stories about rebellious children of a certain age who are rampaging through the star lanes. You know, your Voltrons and uh, most of She-Ra and, uh, I, I don't know, you name a few. Space cases. Silverhawks. Anybody yeah, remember space cases? Warriors. Huh? Not me. I just trust you. Yeah, it had a... What the fuck is space cases, it had, John? I think, a very young Jewel State and uh, the guy who was the original black power ranger wow okay i don't even that that means very little to me i do not re- remember the original black power ranger oh or any power ranger for that matter what a shame i can remember all I mean, jewel the state. original power ranger jewel state i remember fairly well she was the one on firefly who talked frankly and honestly about her vagina yes. yeah and it was uh it, it was very off-putting to some people at the time not me but apparently that was like a thing that was supposed to be shocking about the show. Hmm. But that's that's her, all right. And then she went on to be on some CW show about ladies who dislike other ladies, I think. Ah, uh, yes, your classic CW show. <laughs> I don't know. I just know who that is. So, I, But what is Space Cases? What, what was the premise? Was it some teens in space? I mean, basically, it was like teens and... I think there were a couple preteens, but it was basically like almost a uh, like a just or not Justice League, a uh, League of Legion of Superheroes thing where it was like all of them are a different alien. All of them have sort of a thing that they do. Ah, yeah, the Legion of Superheroes. And then, of course, which has always been the lamest. Yeah, obviously. Did Legion of Superheroes even have one human? Actually, I think it had several. Probably. I think it had, I think it had, I think Karate Kid, I think was a human on the Legion of Superheroes. But it was, Legion of Superheroes always struck me as completely dumb because it was like, what's your story? Well, each one of us is a teenager from our own planet where everyone has the same superpower and we have that superpower. We're superheroes. And all I could think is like, wouldn't that mean there's billions of superheroes exactly like every one of you? Yes. Yes, but, but we have flight rings. And we fight a lady with a Green Lantern eyeball. And that's that's everything. That's the whole show. That's it. That's all of it. So basically, you get the idea of what you're supposed to emulate with uh, with this rule kit. Uh, but you do it the same way as you do in kids in bu- on bikes. You have 
six stats, and each one of them gets assigned one of these six basic dice. And then it's just a simple roll under a target, or sorry, roll over a target difficulty game. The six stats in question are grit, brains, flight, charm, fight, and brawn. And they actually do a lot of things that that you would like them to do underneath the purview of each one of those stats. So, for example, flight represents both your ability to run away from shit and your ability to fly an airplane or space plane, whatever. I mean, I like that they kind of broke it down into, you know, three sets of two. So you've got your brains and brawn, your fight or flight, and then your charm or grit. Mm Mm-hmm. And then having it... I like like that each one of them has... Having it uh, go where it's like, yeah, you know, grit is both how gritty you are, so like street smart and intimidating and stuff, but like also how hearty you are physically. Yeah, there's just a couple of them that work that way, where uh, where they have kind of both meanings of the word, but it's smart when they do it. And I think they did a good job of kind of recognizing that a lot of the time those tropes are shared. Like, oh, in most teen media, pilots that are especially good pilots also tend to be kind of wiry and quick on the ground for some reason. Like, when you're looking at uh, when you're looking at Voltron, Hunk's not the best pilot on the team. He's just really good. And he also, he's kind of big and beefy on the, on the ground. He's the best pirate on the team. Weird that he's so nice. <laughs> I'm not even sure if his name is Hunk. Is his name Hunk? It's it's Lunk or Ch- Chank or something, right? It's it's Hunk. Pank? P- it's hunk. Okay, I got it right, and I, I unintentionally sabotaged myself. Is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Yeah. Honestly, the whole time I was reading my way through this book, Voltron was kind of my my anchor. That's where I kept going back to because to me, that's currently the kind of most quintessential teens in space thing of the past few years. I know is- Shira is out there and is awesome as hell. I mean, I definitely wasn't just because. I mean, Voltron is much more. Like, just five humans. Like, it doesn't really have a whole lot of the alien stuff that this is really going for. Okay, well, first of all, it's not five humans on Voltron, and I think you should know that right away. One of them is some weirdo species. Yeah, It's four humans, a half uh, human, and then a whatever. I I think Almerian, is that right? Sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah, and then one of them is half bad guy yeah, species. Half human. So come on now. I mean, granted, yes, it's they are all members of species that just happen to look like humans, and if they're half human, they look even more mm-hmm. like humans. Uh they look more human than human, in fact. But it and and whenever they meet aliens, the aliens are always like bulbous piles, so it does kind of follow that traditional trope. But then again, almost all media follows that dumb trope. Yeah, it just, you know, where even if it doesn't feel like a teens in space, like the way that this kind of wants it to be, because this is like you have one mm. ship, uh, you're going around and like you'll go down to a planet and get in some adventures or you'll have to like fly your cool spaceship away from things. But it doesn't really have that same Voltron feel. No, I get where you're coming from there. Yeah, uh, granted, Voltron, I mean, sure, in Voltron, they actually do have one big ship they all fly around in. They just also happen to have big lion power armor suits that combine to form a big robot. That would not be especially difficult to bolt onto this mm. game. Uh, but, but I mean, what, what are you using as your kind of go-to, then? What's, what's your core piece for this game? I mean, oddly enough, outside of space cases, which I'm probably the only person that remembers, uh, 
Sure. It really, it kind of feels like teenage Farscape to me is the general vibe I get. Hmm. Okay. I can kind of see that. Yeah. <laughs> I would actually kind of like to see teenage Farscape. Uh, notably, especially because when you, when you're initially picking your spaceship, one of the options is like organic sentient spaceship, mm-hmm. which really does kind of drive home the Farscape connection. Yeah. And you can take that organic spaceship and be like, all right, it starts out as non-sentient, but you can get various levels of sentience for it. So you've got like mm-hmm. a lot of very interesting parallels you can do. There are weird aliens in here that are a little more like Farscape tried to do. Yeah, Farscape was interesting in that with its alien species. It, yeah, I mean, yeah, you had whatever Virginia Hay was playing and that that Klingon alike with the tentacle beard. But for the most part, a lot of the aliens were very bizarre in body plan and organization. Like the pilot, it was a, a whole big mess of things. And uh, Rigel was adorable. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, and of course, obviously, there was a species of warlike humans that were just space humans. Got to have that. Oh, yeah. And I mean... It's not like that isn't represented in the book as well. Nope, certainly is. There's about 20 or so alien species all the way towards the back of this book that that run the gamut from, oh, we're humans, but we have a war culture and we're blue, to, you know, like a sentient cloud. It's a a pretty wild collection. Oh, yeah. And we'll get there. Uh, But, okay, that's good. I can also kind of see a Farscape thing, like a Farscape kids. Oh, yeah, you're just, you know, the way I see it is usually... Uh, like a Farscape or maybe even uh, Andromeda, which is just sort of a we're on a spaceship and we probably shouldn't be and we're being chased and we get in fun adventures. Like, hmm, that's okay. the general vibe I'm going with. Yeah, but with teenagers, thus making it like a slightly hornier Lex. Kind of. I mean, <laughs> yeah, basically okay. just being like, the way I viewed it was less... Like, these teenagers were given a spaceship for some reason, and more, they have stolen a spaceship, and now they're getting an adventure. I mean, granted, a lot of the initial spaceship design stuff, which is supposed to be a uh, a fully collaborative thing you do with the party, does give you options for why do you have a spaceship? Oh, we stole it. Oh, it belonged to my recently disappeared father. It's a lot of, it's rarely, well, because we're supposed to have a spaceship, we're in the military, and usually, you're misfits. How did you get this, and why is it your fault? Yeah. And I like that. So the first thing you do in this game isn't really make a character. It's it's make a ship. And the ship's as much a part of your, your game as your characters are, so that, that's nice to begin there. And you start with a couple of generic things that define your ship. You, you get a, a stat rating and a couple of different items, like turrets and shields and engines. And uh, you automatically start with a ship capable of faster-than-light travel to stop that from being a big argument. Yeah, they don't want it to be like, oh, you didn't buy the FTL upgrade? Well, you gotta putter around like one planet, then I guess. <laughs> yeah, and then you start making decisions, and the decisions are going to go a long way towards informing the flavor of the game you're going to play later. And I like this. I like this kind of collaborative, shared storytelling beginning to a game, because it gets everybody involved even before the game has begun, even before you have characters down that are all you're already building flavor. You're already marinating the chicken that is this, this game is going. Oh yeah, to be. I mean this game has just questions for the players for everything. Like when you're building your ship, Mm -hmm. it has a bunch of questions that you should answer that'll sort of inform what your ship should be as you're making your characters. 
every process has some questions it wants you to answer. Yeah. Yeah. So right from the beginning, you've got a 10 uh, question list of how you build your ship. And then you just sort of assemble it out of parts. So you start with things like, uh, what's the crew do? Why do they have this ship? Is the ship the right ship for this crew and what they do? It doesn't have to be. You could be trying to operate out of a ship that's completely wrong for the job you want to get done. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could be like, oh, we're trying to, I don't know, fight against an oppressive regime, but we're in, like, just a junky freighter instead of a cool warship. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, tell a story about, uh, or tell a story that people who aren't crew members of the ship would know about this ship. Why is it famous? And I like that kind of stuff. And then you choose kind of one of, uh, I think it's like a, a list of eight or so types of ship that you can play in, or you can run yeah, you in. you can. Things like, oh. You the- can build your own, but they give you sort of a, here are generic, like, archetypes of ship that have some suggested yeah. ways to build them. Well, yeah, they catch all the fun tropes of uh, of spaceship design from, like, popular media. So you've got... The ancient tech ship, which is a ship that's older than the civilization it's it's that you're from, and no one understands where it, it's like when you have the Atlantis flying pyramid ship. Yeah, or you could get like a prototype, so you're flying around in like, oh, we stole a one of a kind ship that you know someone's gonna be after. Yeah, perhaps it has invincible quantum armor and the ability to blow up suns. Perhaps. Yeah, or you can get a stealth ship. So if you want to play as, like, I don't know, the Defiant for the first season that the Defiant was on the yeah. show, uh, and, and so on. So you choose one of those, and then it comes with a list of potential upgrades you're going to select. And in something that is a fairly neat twist, uh, depending on if there's uh, how the DM manages things, you ch- you uh, spend your own resources on upgrading the ship as well as on upgrading yourself. Yeah, the everything uh, is you can spend- improvement points. And improvement points mm-hmm. are both your stats and the ship stats. Yeah. And uh, notably, whoever invests the most improvement points in the ship at the beginning of the game is the owner and captain. And they get final say on the name of the ship, too. And whoever puts the most into a specific thing will generally control that when the ship is going. So if you're like, oh, I put a lot of points into the guns, then they're like, great, you're in charge of the guns when, like, ship combat happens because you're the one who invested in it. Yeah. And then you're going to go through, I mean, you're not going to do this until you get to the very end of the book, but you're going to go through and select a couple of upgrades for the ship that you're going to buy with your own improvement points that, again, you could spend to boost your own stats or or uh, get special powers, that sort of thing. Uh, but you're going to put them into the ship as well because this game is doing a very strong split between whether you're doing uh, personal stuff or ship stuff. You're supposed to be doing a lot of things in the ship. And I gotta say, I usually hate that. I usually hate ship-to-ship combat in a game that's about ground combat because it almost always ends up being a whole different engine that doesn't mesh at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've mentioned before, anytime you put vehicles in a game, the old-style rules were always like, all right, now here's an entirely separate game with a different engine. Mm Mm-hmm. And the two have nothing to do with each other. And by the way, maybe two of the four of you are going to be participating right now. The rest of you, chill out. Uh, not here, though. Here they've done a very good job of integrating the two levels of combat in a way that I found particularly satisfying. Yeah, no, I think it, it does a good job. The The fact that the ship stuff works basically exactly the same as the character stuff as far as the, you know dice that you're rolling the stats that you're using 
you know, what the various outcomes will mean for you. Yeah. Uh, I did find that the, uh, a lot of the upgrades are nice as well because they're just narrative conveniences that work all the time and you don't have to roll for them. For example, you can just buy things like a greenhouse that provides enough food for two people per unit of greenhouse that you buy. So now you don't have to spend a bunch of time on the ground thinking about food and purchasing it. You can eat on the ship if you need to. Or a cryostasis chamber that you can use for long-form flight, or you can use it as a prison. Whatever you have to do. And it just works. It just adds a new wrinkle to your ship and the way that you play on and around your ship without becoming a new mechanic. Mm Mm-hmm. Now... So I found that kind of I do of want nice. to mention that you do get uh, every player, when you're answering the questions about your ship and whatnot, does get to add a free one or two point improvement to the ship. So you don't have to give up like your own personal points to do stuff. You will have a better than just starting ship, but, you know, you will be able to, if you want to, invest more later. Yeah, absolutely. So... When you're done with that, it's time to, you know, name your ship, get it all set up, describe what it's like. Part of it's just literally, how does this faster-than-light system work? That's going to be part of it, because it'll, it'll inform a lot about the, uh, the setting that you're going to be playing in. If uh, faster-than-light travel is, I don't know, maybe you have to use a spike engine to warp through hell, that's going to tell you a lot about the type of world that the game's <laughs> going to take place in. Yeah, I mean, you can have a yeah. lot of different ways that a lot of different things work, And so just setting up what is your tech assumption is a good way of building the setting. Yeah, I I found this whole opening chapter of ship design to be very compelling. I I like the idea, and I haven't done my my, uh, bonus content character yet because I kind of want to go through all this stuff when we do the bonus uh, episode. It seems like it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then you're going to get into building your character. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you have six stats, and the way that you assign values to each of your stats is you have a D20, a D12, a D10, uh, a D8, a D6, and a D4, and you put one in each one of your stats. Uh, depending on what trope you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can choose tropes or you can build them yourself. The tropes are basically the types of people that you might encounter in space, uh, they, you know, things like captain, engineer, uh, deposed royalty, that kind of thing. They they will give you a sort of guideline for how to place each one of the six stats, but you don't have to follow them. You can build your own trope and put your stats wherever you want to. Yeah, I mean, if there's if there's I nothing there that you're like, ah, yes, this conveys what I was going for. Uh, yeah, I mean, granted, there's a there's a quite a few tropes, and it would be very difficult to f- to not find what you're looking for there in some mm. regard. Uh, but. But there's, if you just want to build them yourself, you can go ahead and do so. Because the only thing that tropes are, they kind of sound like they might be the classes of the game, but they are nothing but a suggestion about where you should put dice on stats and then a series of questions that you should answer as a player to give you a sense of what your character's going to be like. So, for example, if you're looking at the captain one, it's just like, oh, put your D20 in grit, put your D6 in flight, uh, in fight, excuse me. You should probably put a higher flight if you're the captain of the ship. No, you got a G4 in flight if you're the captain. You're not flying. You're just telling someone else to fly. You got a good point there, but actually the D10 and captain goes to flight. Uh, How does it feel to be responsible for your crew? What advice did a parent or mentor give you before you left? So you get a couple of kind of character locating questions from each one of the tropes. Uh, I was there towards the very, very back of the book, and character creation overall is, you know, towards the front. 
So I had a very different expectation of what they were going to be than what they were by the time I got back there. I was really expecting them to be the classes, and they would include, like, some discrete powers and skills and junk like that. But they are very much just suggestions. Yeah, it's essentially just, this is what we assume this trope would be, uh, stat-wise. And then, you know, like you said, questions to really help you get in the mindset of whatever that trope is. Yeah. So... Because you have a die in each one of your uh, stats, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly how the game plays. Uh, you pick up those dice and roll them for types of challenges that relate to that uh, stat. So, for example, if you're fighting someone, you're going to pick up your fight die and roll that and add any associated bonuses you have and compare that against a value that's either set by your, your target opponent or, if it's not a fight roll, by uh, the storyteller, the game master. Uh, this does create, uh, to me, this is one of the things that I feel like could be improved upon in this engine a little bit. It's very, very, that's a big gap between a D20 and a D4. Now, all of the dice do explode, so if you roll a yeah. 4 on your D4, you get to roll again, and you keep rolling if you keep rolling max on whatever your die is, uh, and mm-hmm. you stop as soon as you would reach a success, because this game does have a degrees of success thing to it. So you can only explode to the Mm -hmm. point that you would succeed, but at least it makes it so that your low end dice have a better chance of exploding. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The, uh, your lowest stat has five times as higher, a higher chance of exploding as your highest stat. But your highest stat can pretty straightforward actually get to a decent thing. Most of the time, because the, Difficulty ranges that it gives you in this are kind of punishing, honestly. That's true. Yeah. Uh, right away, you'll notice that like the one or two, which you would expect to hit 75 to 50% of the time with your lowest possible stat, is for things that you barely would ever even need to roll on. Yeah, you're basically just like, oh, you should pretty much be guaranteed on this unless, I don't know, you're under extreme pressure. Yeah. So basically we do the the way that they describe them is uh, they use examples. And so like a seven to nine difficulty, which without exploding is impossible. If you're rolling a, a, either of the lowest two dice, if you have a D six or a D four assigned to either one of these things, you cannot hit these numbers without exploding one to two, the simplest possible uh, success. And then for some reason it jumps right to seven to nine. I have no idea what happened to the three to six range. Uh, a task where success is certain for those very skilled at it, but not for those who aren't. Uh, so now I assume that means that it's supposed to really be relying in on bonuses and explosions because even a seven to nine, you're still only going to hit about 65% of the time, even on the D 20. Yeah. So, so it doesn't feel guaranteed. No. And the fact that that is outside of the, you know, the one or two lol, you should basically always hit this. That's sort of the baseline difficulty that they give. I just kept looking at it going, God, that seems really harsh as your low-end difficulty. Well, it almost seems like there might be a mistake in here. I mean, I'm not saying there is. I don't know. This is a new game, and everything seemed pretty good. But difficulty goes 20. It's almost impossible. Only incredible people could succeed at this. 19 to 17. 13 to 16. 10 to 12. 7 to 9. One to two. And I keep thinking, where is three through six, which would actually be a reasonable difficulty range to set as your average? 
It's like they kind of just beefed and forgot to put it in there. Now, there is a thing with this that is one of the baseline uh, rules here, which is if you fail any roll, you get a little uh, token. So Mm -hmm. you can spend that token, the adversity token, later on for a plus one to something, and you can use multiple however you want. So it it almost... uh, Other people can spend them. Yeah. It almost feels like they were assuming you would fail a lot and then have to use adversity tokens. I mean, maybe that is the way this works. Like, narratively, it's supposed to be a story about how you get beat down, beat down, beat down, and eventually it starts to turn around and you're doing good and you're doing good and you're doing good. I guess. I mean, I, we've seen other game engines that use that exact mechanic, where the, I I want to say, what, Tomorrow Nights or something like that, where the basic mechanic was... Uh, the DM is way stronger at the start. No, it was that that inscrutable superhero game. What was that called? With Great Power? Sure. <laughs> oh, that's just coming back to me. That fucker was insane. And it was built around like having to have an actual deck of cards, and the DM gets like 50 times more cards than you, and you have to like bet cards to get cards from the DM and all that. And the basic idea behind it, when you really boiled down all of the obscurities of it, was... It, you suck in the beginning, and hopefully you've built something reasonable by the end. Yeah, because if you lost, like you had the lower card, you got to keep the cards that were bet, but you didn't succeed. So you would end up being bad to begin with and then build up some cards. Yeah, yeah. So here we don't necessarily see that much sort of obtuseness to it, because the uh, adversity tokens are just giving you little plus ones to your role as opposed to vastly changing the game's output. But keep in mind that these adversity tokens are useful for a wide variety of tools. Uh, in addition to giving you a plus one to a role, you can also use them to avoid being damaged in combat, or at least avoid being damaged dramatically in combat. So they're very valuable, and you only get them by failing at things. Yeah. It's, I mean, I understand the design philosophy of we don't want to make failure feel awful because so much in the old style design of binary pass fail was either you got to do what you wanted or you didn't do anything. And the idea of we'll make failure mean you get something in return is at least nice because then it's not a complete loss And the book does also say you can fail forward with this. Like, even if you don't accomplish what you set out to do, you should still move things forward. Yeah. I mean, granted, specifically, there's not only just fail forward, like the classic, okay, you maybe didn't get what you wanted, but something happens that pushes the story forward. But also there's success, but, which is, and and there's not really a big difference between the two of them in terms of what you roll or anything. It's just, if you fail... The thing you may be trying to do just happens anyway, but also bad shit happens to you, or it doesn't happen for the reason you wanted. Which isn't quite failing forward. It's a, it's like, uh, it, it's different in that you, you technically still get the thing you were shooting for, just not in the way you were hoping to. So, uh, and then there's a couple different types of skill rolls you could be called upon, or stat rolls you could be called upon to make. Uh, planned, and I think it's called snap decisions is the other yeah. one. So if you're doing a... Uh, snap decision, it's your standard type of roll where it's just, you take your die, you roll it and see how you did with a planned roll. If you're like, oh, we're trying to make up a plan to like infiltrate a party and we're going to do this and that, then you can, uh, use the average 
roll of your die instead of rolling. Yeah. Uh, so, and also on a planned action, other players can contribute adversity tokens to help you succeed at it. In a snap action, you're you're going too fast. You're thinking too hard to be working with a team, and so other people can't con- contribute adversity tokens, but you can spend mm-hmm. your own. Uh, so there's a couple different types of sort of speeds at which you can make decisions that the game reflects and respects. Uh, ship-to-ship combat, or ship-to-ship anything, works very similarly. You can roll your own stat from inside the ship, but if the ship has a stat value in the thing you're trying to do, you roll that die and your die, and then you compare them against the difficulty range. So, for example, if you're shooting at an enemy ship with your ship's uh, laser systems, and your ship has D4 lasers, then you roll your fight die plus your, your ship's D4 laser die, total those together and compare them against the difficulty grid. Now, a lot of the time, these ship dice will only pop into existence if you spend resources to have them happen. Yeah. Uh, Ships in particular have a stat called heat. Yeah, and the more you use special interesting things about your ship, the more heat it will generate, and it'll generate more heat the better it is. So if you have, say, a cloaking device... Be like, oh, we can kind of be invisible to the naked eye, but you could still like get our heat signature or whatever. You're like, oh, we're spending one heat to activate it, and we get that. But if you're like, oh, we straight up are fully invisible to everything and can phase through objects, now you're spending five heat to activate it, and it is far more impressive, but you have to spend time to get rid of your heat. Yeah, heat can be recovered in a couple different ways. Uh, it comes back at one heat per hour if uh, if you're just flying around at normal speed, not doing crazy combat or anything. Or if you straight up turn your ship off for at least a full hour, you just get all your heat back. But it does take a while to turn your ship back on. Oh, yeah. If you managed to go over half your total heat, then turning your ship back on becomes much more time-consuming and difficult than if you were like, oh, we spent a couple, we turned off the ship real quick, turned it back on. But if you're like, oh, we really pushed the ship to its limits, then you might have some issues. Yeah. And increasing thrusters, increasing heat value, increasing storage, cryostasis chambers, greenhouse, these are all just things you can spend improvement points on, and none of them are especially expensive. A starting ship has five heat, but it costs like one improvement point per heat to just boost them up. So you can make your ship increasingly capable of taking... Uh, longer bursts of being pushed hard uh, to accomplish tasks, which I like. I like that kind of ruggedness angle to a ship, where you'd think something like the Falcon, for example, would uh, have a, a tremendously high heat rating because as crappy and old of a ship it is, it can just take endless punishment and just keep doing things. So I appreciated that about it. One of the things I did find kind of weird about the heat system is how it interacted with the sentience system on ships. Yeah. You can... No, just Go ahead. the fact that uh, the sentience that they use for it, they baseline assume it will be an AI that you are letting mm-hmm. control your ship. So you can be like, oh, I'll let the ship do whatever so that we can have like a greater accuracy or fly better or whatever it is. But it takes heat if you're using it for the day. So... Like, Mm -hmm. if you have a living sentient ship, it has to, like, 
go into a sleep mode, I guess, for a while? I mean, I kind of get it. I, I don't remember the name of the ship in Farscape, but I, I, I think it did have to sleep. And it routinely, it was very rarely awake and, and you know, taking part in things beyond having hallways. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of weird that it feels like it's up to the player's control. If you're flying around in an organic, sentient space whale, you'll do things like, hey, you have to wake up, ship. We need you to fly yourself for a while. Okay, now go back into stasis, sentient creature that we that we are, are commensalist with. This is, uh, it feels very unusual in that regard. I mean, I can sort of see from a narrative standpoint, you could say, all right, it's always, like, awake and sentient, but allows whoever's piloting it to pilot unless you call on it to pilot, I guess. Yeah, I can see that. Like, if you're actually using it for things that uh, are, are to the benefit of the party, it makes sense that, okay, now it's spending heat. And notably, that means that it can't just be, you know, your pilot. You can't have your ship be your pilot uh, because it burns heat per day and you can't recover heat when you're spending yeah. heat. Although that does also mean for things like if you have a, you know, instead of a greenhouse, you decided you wanted the Star Trek, like, food replicator. That's a thing you can do, but if you use it, each day it increases the heat meter by one, so you can't just rely on replicators for your food. Yeah. I mean, granted, that one is a little... I feel like that's the kind of thing I'd bend if I was building a game. If I was like playing Star Trek Teenagers then hell yeah, they could just have replicators, because on Star Trek, they just have replicators. I know, plus it's also a pretty expensive improvement, and all it does is say, you get some food. That's true. I mean, that's one of those situations where there's no fundamental difference between it and the greenhouse, like, on a day-to-day balance basis. I guess maybe you're supposed to be like, I don't really like greenhouse food. I want some replicated hamburgers. But Hmm. uh, having it cost heat is kind of taking an actual game mechanic and using it for a, you know what? I'm not that hurt by it. It is a little weird. Yes. For something that has no real effect on the gameplay. It is weird that it would affect your actual mechanics for how well you can do things in space. And heck that, that was a plot point a couple of times on star Trek. Remember on, uh, on Voyager when they found that nebula that was coffee. Come on, you got to remember that. That time when they were actually running out of coffee and their ship couldn't replicate coffee, and then they found a nebula that was coffee. Uh, you, me- you remember? I mean, Voyager also just <laughs> had the whole greenhouse thing, too, because they were like, oh, replicators do use heat, and it it's taken energy to do that, and we got to fly for a while. So we'll have, I guess it takes less energy to just grow plants. Yeah, and and indeed they did. They had a big old hydroponics bay greenhouse, which luckily they didn't show very often because it was way too small to feed the 160 or so people that were on that ship. Yes, indeed. Okay, so basically that's all there is to character initial design. You are going to get a number of improvement points to spend, and you can spend them on purchasing. You can't change the dice in your character. You can't buy your D4 up to a D6. Instead, you can buy plus ones to, uh, to certain types of rolls. Uh, primarily through, and this is an interesting decision on the game's part, cybernetic upgrades. I mean, granted, I'm sure you could, if you want to, just flavor them as, I don't know, I'm getting stronger because I'm working out, or I'm getting smarter because of the Force, or whatever other Star War, or Star convention you want to use, 
but they use cybernetics for almost everything as they make their way through explanations in the book. Yeah, and, you know, it makes sense because of the way combat works. Yeah, it sure uh, does. But it also feels weird that, like, ah, yes, the only way to get better is to be cybernetically enhanced. And you're like, that seems oddly specific for a space team game where you should have someone who's like, oh, I, I come from, I don't know, a whole alien species of enlightened monks, and at some point I reached the next level of my enlightenment. Yeah. Now, the reason that we're we're, uh, call we're saying that this combat situation seems a little unusual is because the way combat works in this game, and honestly, this is a point we're probably going to break out and talk about something else for like 10 minutes, but combat in this game follows the modern game design mantra that combat should be quick and brutal. Uh, we see this in a lot of, of newer games nowadays. It seems to be just sort of a, 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 a common buzzword right now. Quick and brutal combat. It should have extremely important stakes, but you shouldn't be in, involved in every combat for a really long time. And this game takes that super to heart. Every combat is two rolls. It's one team rolling against the other team while the other team rolls against the first team. And those roles are the entire combat. Now, we had mentioned before that this game has degrees of success. And outside of combat, you have that sort of, like, you know, did you get anywhere from, like, a plus one to more than a plus ten over the roll that you needed? Did you get anywhere from a minus one to a minus fifteen? That'll affect how good or bad you did on whatever you were doing. The way that yeah. that works, though, in combat is instead of being like, oh, I want to shoot at this person and, you know, they take some hit points and then they'll shoot at me and I'll take some hit points and we'll sort of go back and forth like this. The game just says, all right, if you hit, check your degree of success. How badly did you mess up the other person? And if you get a good enough degree of success, you just murder them. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, it's... There's a, a little table that tells you kind of the results of how, how bad you, you got hit. Uh, and it, the way it works specifically is who narrates the outcome. Uh, so if you beat the opponent's defense roll by like one to four, you narrate your attack. They take some damage but, or in some way. This game doesn't have hit points. Uh, they take some kind of damage or blow in some way, but they still get to narrate the outcome of how they react. To yeah, it. so if, if but, you didn't beat them by a lot, the defender is like, okay, I'll probably take a penalty on the next roll. Like, maybe I'm dazed, or you, like, gave me a laser burn, but not enough to... It's a direct hit, and I get to sort of say how I got out of the way. Yeah, yeah. And all the way up to the point where if you beat someone's other roll by, like, more than 12, then you're doing enough damage to them that you get to narrate the outcome, you get to narrate the attack, and the only thing that they get to narrate is how their defense doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Like, they throw up a defense, and it's just not good enough, and they get blown yeah, right the, through. That's the that's the part that's left The only them. way you get to do anything is if you sacrificed yourselves for the good of the group. Then you can say how your sacrifice helped the group. Mm-hmm. So... In order to stop every battle from being incredibly uh, lethal, you have a couple of options. Because, again, the only you don't have hit points in this game. If you just get beat by a certain defense roll, or if your defense roll gets beaten by a certain value, rather, you're just getting a laser blast through your chest. You die. It's that simple. Yeah. 
now, now, obviously, your players don't want to just get murdered for participating in combat every single time because you're not being able to die behind cover. There's not a whole lot of smart play available here. You're rolling against them. Uh, granted, you can you can get bonuses and so on by saying you're playing smartly, and that's that's entirely a a, a narrative toolkit that's available to you and ha- to hash out with your with your uh, GM. But it's fairly straightforward. Now, if you get blasted really hard, you can sacrifice things to not die. You can throw adversity tokens at the problem to boost your own defense value, or you can sacrifice things that you have purchased for yourself with improvement points in order to reduce the uh, the damage that you're taking to just one above your defense yeah, roll. Yeah, so at that point, you can say, oh, I would have been murdered by this roll? Okay, uh, well, I have a cyber arm that normally gives me, like, a plus one to my brawn. All right, well, I don't mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, I Now I get to narrate, since it goes down to one... I'll narrate how it shoots my arm and it's still functional, but it no longer gives me the plus one until I repair it. Exactly. Now, this means that you're losing things that you have purchased with XP. Basically, your XP gets shot off you. Yeah. Now, it is easier to get back. You pay half whatever the improvement costs you to get it back. But Mm -hmm. also, it is, I mean... Back in the day of D&D with level drain or stat drain, that was the worst thing that could possibly happen because not only was it taking something permanently away from you, but it just made you functionally worse than everyone else at the table if it happened to you. And it it's just a yeah. feels bad to have that happen. So even if you're like, oh, I didn't die, but now I'm also worse than everyone. I mean, it's still a thing in modern games. Nowadays, rather than being in the level drain mechanic, which has become more or less perennially unpopular, uh, it's been replaced by people's homegrown crit result tables. Hmm. Where they're like, oh, you got hit in the arm and your arm has horrible damage to it and you you suffer a minus two to things because your arm got hit so bad. And people like those because they're gory and they're interesting. But what they don't really tend to factor in is that those things are brutally one-sided in a long enough run. Yeah. It doesn't uh, matter if you shoot it doesn't... someone else 20 times and you're like, ha-ha, I blew off, like, five different dudes' legs. Eventually, your leg gets blown off, and you're like, well, shit. Yeah, and, and narratively speaking, the foes that you're fighting, your stormtroopers and what have you, were going to be gone at the end of the combat one way or the other. Either you horribly maimed them for some reason, or you just shot them. They're just dead. Uh, but either way, they're gone, whereas you are going to continue on, and eventually those numbers are going to catch up to you and maim you. Uh, now, that's not I'm not talking about this game anymore, necessarily. I'm still talking about people's gory crit result tables. Uh, in this game, it's the only narrative hook. It's not like you could just say, why are we dealing with this? Why don't we just make it hit point damage? Here, this is the only way that damage takes place. Yeah, it is just straight up a, depending on how much you failed... Uh, you take some narrative amount of an effect. You know, like we said, anywhere from, oh, I got a scratch, maybe I'm like minus one on my next thing, maybe I'm just fine on the next thing, it doesn't matter, up to being like, oh, you could be badly hurt to the point where you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. I got hit in a vital organ and I'm either getting professional care or I'll die, 
or just you got shot in the head yeah. and are dead. Now, one of the things earlier I was mentioning that this game tends to ha- have kind of a cybernetics bent to it, where it constantly mentions cyber eyes and cyber arms and having to go to body chop shops to get your upgrades and your parts. And uh, this is the same is true of having to spend like credits, money to get these things done. Uh, this has kind of a weird side effect that it's a limiting factor. It can be used that way by the by the GM. So if you take a shot in your cyber eye and lose your bonus to to uh, to aiming for a while, you're gonna you're gonna run into this problem where oh well I had a plus three bonus to that. That's pretty rare. It may take a while for me to find a cyber specialist who's capable of repairing that that eye or even willing to do so, depending on what my wanted level is. Oh like. yeah, because if I'm like yeah, there's. I spend improvement points and I can put more into one thing. So if, you know, I have just a plus one at something, then, hey, sure, yeah, that's pretty easy. Any standard cyber doc could do that. But as soon as you're like, cool, I invested a lot into this. I've got a plus six. You're like, that's too hard. Sorry. Yeah. Now, this creates kind of a problem where it's hard to map that structure onto other means of power progression. It's hard to describe how the force got shot mm, out of you. Mm. And and then how it took you several weeks to find an extra Yoda to teach it back into you at half cost. <laughs> so it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting thing to have to think about that. And it becomes especially compounded when you get back to this book's list of aliens, which a lot of them don't seem especially compatible with the cybernetic system. Oh, yeah. The the species list in this is split up into ones that were uh, just in the book baseline. So they are just species that Mm -hmm. they already had. And then they have a whole bunch of species that were sort of guest writers created. Yeah, and I'm guessing that's because this is a Kickstarter game. I don't know for sure, but that seems like the reason there'd be so many people being credited. Uh, whether that I'm guessing, given the fact that I recognize a lot of the names, heck, there are people who are credited in this book who are followers of ours on Twitter. I've never felt so connected to the gaming in- sphere than by reading a new game for once. Oh, look, people that are still around and not run out of the business. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. I'm so used to dealing with people who print, publish their one game and then retired in shame 20 yeah. years ago. Uh, yeah, this is this is crazy. But there's a lot of guest writers, and I feel like... Okay, I'm just going to say it outright, and then we can discuss some of the species in in detail. Um, it feels like they should have set a very simple premise for designing a care a species for this game, which, and I'm I'm going to say it's very base, basic. There should be a point where the species is recognizably a teenager. That's all. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's called Teens in Space. It's all about teens and their emotional development and how they don't necessarily get the respect they deserve from from adults and no respect, no respect at all. Do they get from adults? No regard and no esteem mm-hmm. either. But um, but you look at the race, the, the species list, and it should be fairly simple. They should be space available, and they should be sometimes teenagers. That's all you need. And yet, a lot of the species in this book don't seem to hit those marks. Yeah, it's. I mean, obviously, you can just say like, "Oh, I'm a rebellious teen version of." fart sphere and you're like okay i guess but uh i mean yeah. they do try and go out of their way to say all right we're gonna give you a very basic description of any of these species so that if you want to change some things you can but when you have things like 
what is this species? Oh, it's a uh, sentient water and the water is made sentient by the creatures that live in it. And so, you know, maybe you're like a lake and that's what your character is. Yeah. You're like, okay. Um, how's my dude going on adventures? Well, obviously he's stored in an aquarium and okay. And how is he recognizably a teenager? Ah, he is swarming with pimple fish <laughs> and, uh, his urge tide is rising. Yeah. And he doesn't know what to do Sometimes, with it. Sometimes, I don't know, the the plankton inside of him get together and form a dick. I, I don't know. You can tell because when they're teenagers, they constantly have hard water, even if they hey. don't want to. What's up? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really cool species here because, and I, I appreciate this. On, 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 I don't want to just come hard down on the species. There's a lot of very smart stuff here and a lot of cool writing. They went way out of their way to not put in too many species that are just forehead ridge aliens. Yes. Uh, a lot of and a lot of them aren't even bipedal or even recognizably have bilateral symmetry or even you know uh, regular means of locomotion. They're wild designs, and I love that shit in aliens. Oh yeah, that's the thing is it's not like I looked at the alien design and went, "This is dumb." I just went, "Man, that's difficult to try and work into the theme." Like I absolutely love the idea of a like sentient pond that is going to get together all of its various like fish and use those as eyes. And it has like, you know, a plankton nervous system and whatnot. I'm like, that's fucking rad. However, yeah, that's the kind of rad shit I expect from descent into midnight, which is a game. I also, a modern game. I also particularly appreciate. Um, but yeah, it doesn't really, I mean, some of the species in this, they aren't even really written with why they'd be going on adventures, and they're kind of wild. Like, there's a species that's art-appreciating clouds. Yeah. And I'm not sure why they'd pile into a spaceship and go somewhere. That that felt like that needed to be in the story. Yeah, there's a a species that is a floating sphere that can eat anything for matter, and when it poops, it poops out what is used for fuel. And they're like, oh, they're super friendly. Mm -hmm. Everyone likes them unless you think there's a giant conspiracy around them. But they're just sort of they're too friendly. nice spheres that poop fuel. And I'm like, that's a very NPC species. Well, yeah, and specifically it's an NPC species from like a very comedic game universe. Because, I mean, let's face it, that's basically Sphere oh, Nibbler yeah. is what that... Cause that's that's exactly what Nibbler's role was in the first couple seasons of Futurama. He pooped fuel. Yep. Uh, but the Informians, as they are known, are basically just floaty spheric versions of that, and everyone likes them because they're so nice and so easy to get along with, and then a lot of people are like, wait a minute, they're too nice. They're, they must be hiding. What are they hiding? I've got a conspiracy. Now, I get it. It's a good comedy premise. Yeah. It just also they do they do feel a it little feels very like oh this is someone that you would talk to on your ship rather than play as oh yeah for sure I could totally see that it's just like a vendor you have to talk to halfway through Mass Effect Four uh, now there are a couple of species that are the the stuff you would basically expect from a uh, a space a, a, a regular space game you've got humans but warlike and humans but psychic. Uh, there's a couple that you wonder why they're even here. Like a few of them have to introduce new whole concepts to the game. There's a species of bird parrot 
uh, actually, they're they're an all female species of parrot bind users, and the bind is the force. Let's just be straight straight up with that. That all spend their time hanging around on asteroid temples, guarding the temples. And I'm not really sure what the like. They they introduce a magical force to the game that didn't previously exist until that species popped up, and I'm not sure what their playable capacity is insofar as they are just usually hanging around on asteroids guarding their temples of secret hidden knowledge and not going I mean, anywhere. I definitely understand that one way more than some of the other ones because you're playing as a rebellious teen who doesn't want to just sit around in a temple. You want to have cool space adventures. You got a good Fuck point you, there. Dad when you're right, Pope. you're right. And, uh, I mean, mom poked you know because what? you're all female. I, I was... And I'll give you another thing about that. When I... There's... There, Beginning of the alien section in this book has a, a very quick synopsis of like a one sentence description of each one. And that one just said like an all female species of mysterious psychics. And I was like, oh, God damn it. Don't put the Bene Gesserit in everything. Stop it with that. But then it turns out, no, they're like weird parrot people who spend most of their time upside down meditating in defense of their weird magic. And I was like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm more into that than I would have been if they were super sexy space psychic ninjas. Oh. Just a very unnecessarily common trope in uh, in space. Well, yeah. Media. Anytime you have the the babe the babe the race, all female species, it's usually and they're sexy Amazons. They're all very badass and they're all very sexy. Yeah, and usually they have some kind of mysterious psychic power, and that's how come they're always clouding the minds of men. What what? Not here. I was I was uh, I was refreshed when I got to them and saw that that wasn't hmm. the case. But it's a fascinating list. It's an interesting list of bizarre species. I just have a little problem where a lot of them feel like they don't really have a teenage phase. And some of them in particular, if they had a teenage phase, they had it millennia ago. Huh. Uh, notably, there's one there's one of those species that starts with, ah, the Pantherids were, were there when the universe was born and they are there still. And I'm like, okay, well, they're mysterious ancients. They aren't going to make very good teenagers. Well, no. They were there, as in the race was there, like the species, the Pantheros was I, there. Yeah, sure. So, so once again, we're talking about the Niblonians, who are a species that was there when the universe was only seven days old. Heck yeah, these are basically the Eldar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're pretty much the Eldar, uh, except that the adults of the species are 20 feet tall. I love that. That one in particular really felt like someone had to go through a do a second pass on them to make them playable at all. Because they're like, well, they're a race of immortal, super wise people from the beginning of the universe. And you can tell who they are because everyone wants to capture them because their bodies make excellent starship fuel and they're 20 feet tall at the minimum. And I was like, okay, so this race of space giants is going to be very difficult to factor into a game. And then someone came through and added a second paragraph that was like, uh, their teenage kids are not giant. They're, they look like other species and they're the normal size. So, so they're playable. They're playable. You, you just, you just get to know that someday you'll be a giant yeah, monster. Okay. Well, you're a teenager, which means you're probably about 200 years old and, uh, mm-hmm. you can look like whatever other species you want to just know that in about, you know, 500 years, you're going to get real big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now uh, there's one race in particular that I found fascinating, but hard to understand why it's here. But do you remember the name of them? It was like the Rognak or Rognas or something like that. Roscog. Thank you. Go ahead and tell us all about them because they're they're interesting. Okay, so the Roscog are interesting in that the only information we get about them is stuff that is going to have happened before play starts. 
because the entire species is essentially just told, hey, they're born and they live out their life for five months and then they fall asleep for ten years. Uh, they, Yeah, and by fall asleep we mean freeze in yeah, place. Yeah, they freeze in place, they become extremely hard to the touch and are just sort of statues for ten years. And then after that, they break out of their statue and they are super hungry carnivores and they'll just consume whatever they can as soon as they come out because they're ravenous. And then after that, Mm -hmm. question mark. I mean, they last for five and a half months and then they freeze up again. That part's definite. They're they're No, it's they did I read that wrong? Start their life uh, and have five months. Then they sleep for 10 years. Then they break out. And then that's it. They go about their business. Oh, I see. I thought that they, uh, they, they had a whole thing where they repeatedly root uh, or they repeated the whole thing. They go through the 10 year slumber and then they, yeah, here we go. They have a lifespan of centuries, but their body freezes in place when their biological clock ticks to noon in the fourth month of their calendar year. Yes. Uh, yeah. See, I thought that that was repeated, that over and over again, they go back no, to sleep. No, I, I did think that as well the first time that I read it. I was like, wow, that's useless. Someone that's like, well, my character will only be around for five months at a time, and the rest of it, I'll just be a statue. But it You know what? I'm reading this, and I, st- I... No, if you read it, it looks like... Uh, no, that's that's just the, like coming of age thing is you get born you wait five months you statue and then you come out and you live the rest of your life i don't know given that the rascog has fed and prepared for their decade-long slumber properly they are intelligent and cunning i i kind of get the impression that these guys do go back into it over and over again that they're like they're like alien disney's gargoyles but you know what it's it's actually nebulous when you read it i'm I'm not sure one way or the other but can we Let's get to the actual important thing about this. That's all there is about them. We don't know what they look like. Yeah, like, the there's one sentence that isn't about their whole, like, sleep and break out thing. And it's just, they have a complex written language, and their cities are miles above ground made from transparent material. That's it. We don't know what they look That's like. That's it. Outside of, a, I guess they're glassy? Yeah, apparently they look glassy and they turn to what looks like glass when they are asleep for a long time. And vines grow around them and it's all very attractive. But, I mean, there's no description beyond that they are hungry briefly when they wake up of what their day-to-day personality is like or anything. All we get is this interesting story about a species that crystallizes for 10 years at a time or does that once, whatever. Um, And that's it. And that's the whole story. And it feels like it's missing some stuff. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Namely, like play tools. That's yeah. that's all. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of these. Just at that point, go. All right, I want to play these guys for some reason, and I guess it's time I decide everything about this species. Which at that point, why don't you just come up with your own species? Yeah. Uh, did you have any favorite species? I really liked the. Uh, I think they're called the the squillions. And they were like a race of shrimp that were someone else's food species that have escaped and kind of like uh, now now live on their own because they've managed to defeat the species that used to eat them. Oh, yeah. I love that the squillings is just, what's this? It's five foot tall bipedal shrimp. And you're like, okay. Yeah, that's rad. And also that the only name they have is what color they are right now. 
because whatever mood they are when they molt informs their color for the next five months or so. <laughs> yeah, no. So their names are things like Red Stripe right now. Oh, Red Stripe. <laughs> the worst beer order you could possibly make. So uh, so I like them a lot. Did you have any other favorite species? Oh, I definitely like the uh, the water, the sentient water guys. Like, Oh, yeah. the lakes? The uh, Benthosa. They're- yeah, they were kind of a they're a super neat idea. They're the kind of shit you'd expect from like Rendezvous with Rama. It's it is neat because it is to me sort of the most alien and there's a lot of play room for, you know, what are the animals inside the water because it's the animals inside them that are giving them their intelligence. You're basically using uh whatever exists inside your waters as your own you know, nervous system and brains and whatnot. And having like different animals would make different experiences. And, you know, however you decide to put your stats, you could be like, Oh, I actually have like a bunch of very, uh, like deep water type animals. So my ability to perceive things sucks. Like I have bad vision, but I've got like, the amazing fight capabilities of someone that has to deal with a bunch of other dudes with giant teeth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I I mean, there's a lot of species in here that I found fascinating and interesting for like a short play session. Uh, and again, it, to me, it felt very much, very much rendezvous with Rama esque where I don't know if you ever read that book, John, there's a couple different Rama books. They're like Arthur C. Clarke. Oh I yeah. Think, well, I stuff. read Rama one half. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Yes. A lot of these species, if you get, if you get them wet, will switch yes. genders. Yeah. Uh, no, the Rama series is the first one's just like, oh, there's an alien spaceship and it leaves and then it comes back. And when it, when it's there, it gives us like, we never get out to it, but we get a look at it and but we keep hoping it'll come back. And when we do, there's a whole bunch of science in place to help us get up to it and visit it. But the the other books in the series are like, what else is in there? Other species that have gone in there and been collected. And they are frankly bizarre none of there 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 are no species that are just like hi we're humans but we really like war instead it's like oh we're squishy spider seals and we talk by flashing colors across our faces (laughs) and it's just it's bizarre and fascinating and i like that about the species in here that they they weren't afraid to go off the beaten path yeah now each so species isn't just uh you know a window dressing of what you look like. You do get a bonus and a drawback for each of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes those bonuses are discrete powers. Other times they're just bonus. They're like actually a discrete number. Yeah, sometimes bonus. it'll be like, oh, you get a plus one to one of your stats and like a free improvement. And sometimes it's just a thing that you can do. So you're like, oh, I I can shape shift as a bonus. Like that's my thing. Uh. Mm-hmm. And some, sometimes they'll just get one of the benefits from the imper- improvement point benefit purchasing list. So you may find a species that just has regeneration as its racial yeah. bonus. And then your drawbacks, again, can also be like, oh, you have a penalty to one of your stats. Or, you know, anytime you are put in a situation, maybe you have a, like, penalty based on where you are. Mm-hmm. And and it's worth noting that human is one of the species that's listed in the back of the book, and they do get bonuses and drawbacks. Uh, I think they get a plus one to fight, and they automatically start with the lucky feat. Mm-hmm. And 
and their <laughs> drawback restless. is that they can't hang around. Yeah, they can't. They just can't hang out. Like if you spend more than a week just chilling somewhere, they're like, guys, we got to do something. And if you fail a grit check, then you're like, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not chilling here anymore. Listen up, you species that's a tree and you other species that's a lake. I'm going to peace out of this situation. Yo, I'm going to steal a, I don't know, one of our little roundabout ships and I'm going to try and do warp 10. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, so I'm a go. lizard I, I now. I think that's... <laughs> don't do warp 10. You'll turn into a lizard for a while. And bang your captain and it'll all be very awkward. So awkward. You should have just gone and found the coffee nebula. <laughs> Okay, so I think it's a good time for us to call what we've talked about and move on to uh, best and worst of this one. John, what do you think? Sure, whatever. All right, what would you say is your favorite thing about this game? Uh, I would say there's a lot to like here. Uh, I definitely think the best thing that this game does is present the tools to make your game good from a player standpoint, whether it's the, you know, questions for every species has a question. Every trope has questions. Your ship has questions. Like there's a lot of world building that you do in the process of making a character. So you don't just make, you know, an isolated individual, you make a setting. I mean, and as in addition to that, it also has, you know, your rules and tools for, uh, like, here are safety tools, whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. having a pause, a fast forward, or drawing a line or drawing a veil. It's got a lot of options for, you know, making sure your players are comfortable. I think the best thing this book does is present the players with a lot of agency. Yeah. And it's it uses pretty generic safety tools that are commonly found in, uh, like, convention hall discussions. And it credits them correctly. It, it, it attributes lines and veils to, uh, I want to say that's the Ron Edwards one, and it attributes the fast-forward, pause, and rewind mechanic to Brebo Sheldon. Mm -hmm. So it actually does throw out the proper attributions and give the proper credit where it's due. And it was really nice to, ha honestly, how often is it that you and I encounter a book with the safety tools in it? Uh, never. Never. We never do it. It's really nice to see them when they're there because they're a good yep. idea. So that was really nice. I agree with you. It was great to see. So what about you? Uh, I think my favorite thing in this book is, I, for as much as I've been making fun of the alien races here and there a little bit, uh, I really appreciate the uh, going out to other authors and bringing in wild ideas to go outside the bounds of human but red. And uh, it always makes me so happy to see a game that tries that and that has the, the, uh, the mechanical toolkit where that's not just an automatic hindrance. I mean, there's multiple quadrupeds that you can play as in this game. And the fact that you just can, don't worry about it. There's, they have their own spacesuits. They fit. They have their own power armor. It fits. It doesn't cost 50% more or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I like that. No, I definitely do. So for me, that's like the, the yeah. breadth of aliens in here is it's very nice to see. Yeah. Uh, now, I do need to ask you what your least favorite thing about the game is. I have to. There's a gun to my head. <laughs> uh, my, le John, my hurry least up. favorite They're gonna thing kill about my family. this game is the gun to Jeff's head. <laughs> I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, but I'm hearing that's not good enough. They're doing that thing where they're rolling their finger to extend the amount of time. <laughs> no, I think definitely my least favorite thing in here is the, uh, 
the degrees of success for damage being punitive to XP. Like, I understand the game design philosophy that they came into writing this with, as far as we don't want mm -hmm. combat to be, you know, three hours. It shouldn't be the only thing that happens if you have one in your game. We want to streamline that down and strip it down. But having it be like, oh, man, uh, I this guy managed to roll well and I managed to not. I guess I'm either dead or permanently lose something is on the on the swing of a single roll. It just feels bad to me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that, especially because the way it works is every enemy gets a roll and every hero gets a roll. So and it happens simultaneously. There's no initiative system either. If you participate in combat, you get your shot at them. They get their shot at you. You can't kill them before they go. Yeah. So, uh, and the example of combat in this game, because this game uses a set of characters, for example, named, I think, Jaxa and Commando Cat, is that Commando Cat just lean, uh, leaps out into combat and starts shooting everybody and just gets blown. Uh, they, they survive it, but they, like, lose some cyber eye upgrades and just take a bunch of hits. The other player is like, well, I only have a D4 in fight. I'm not even fighting. I'm going to dive behind a barrel and just not participate and, and I, I was like well i don't know if that's the best example you could give to have a character is like i volunteer i opt out of this yeah because at that point you're like oh um, if i made someone that's like cool this is the system i want to participate in it punishes them in a way mm -hmm. that none of the other systems do if i put my d20 in say brains and i'm like yeah my character's a scientist mm -hmm. they're super into learning i basically made brainiac five whatever you're like, great, when a system shows up that you have to think your way out of something or come up with a cool idea, then you've got a good chance of doing it. But if you put your D20 in fight, you're like, great, I'm awesome at fighting. Except now if I use that subsystem, I am at risk of just dying or losing stuff. And the fact that the if you put your D20 in fight, you still have this exact same chance to roll a 1 as you do to roll a 20. Uh, because it's not a bell curve system. You roll a d20. I mean, granted, you're going to add like plus two or plus three to that because of your upgrades. So you have a chance to roll a three to a 23, but it's still a very swingy roll, which means you're really putting yourself out there every time you fight, especially because every enemy just gets the same roll you do. Oh, yeah. The second you go up against someone and they're like, oops, looks like they rolled really well and you rolled the one on a 20. Sorry. Yeah. It, you're playing a completely different game if you're participating in combat. And I mean, I'm not saying that they needed to introduce a mechanic whereby someone making a brain roll might get blown up because they're using the same failure chart. But it does feel like you're since combat is op, you can opt out of it just by saying, I don't want to fight. But I have a D4 fight like it's it's uh, it's a little too optional and a little too risky to get in, involved in fighting in this game. And I feel like that could potentially yeah, be a problem. So that's mine. Uh, what's yours? Uh, also that, I mean, that's, fine. uh, no, I, I have other things like, yeah, I mean, granted that is more or less my, my major concern. I would take it to a more philosophical level. I don't know necessarily that quick and brutal is the right choice for this, this milieu or this genre. Yeah. Genre convention. Uh, if you think about, yeah, if you think about the, uh, the things about teenagers in space, whether you're talking about Voltron or, uh, parts of Steven Universe or whatever. Combat is often a chance for people to be beautiful and balletic and interesting. 
uh, to, to force the mantra of quick and brutal and serious and someone's going to fucking die on it. I'm like, I don't know if that's what I would want. I, yeah, for I, a teen's I never game, in, you're like, that's yeah. odd. I never, I never went into an episode of Voltron being like, Hunk's going to die in this one. Mm, mm, mm. So I, I just, I don't know if they, if that quick and brutal mantra was the right mantra here. And, but yeah, that's, that's all. That's, that's my one major complaint. I mean, with yeah, this. I, I uh, agree with that just because I also think from a convention standpoint, I usually think of teens in space as being more about running away from combat and if you are in combat then usually you have some trick or some way to either get out of it or to beat them like there's not a lot of like you were saying like just straight up not murder death. fights even if you win as the team yeah. you're generally not murdering people you're like oh i dumped a barrel on some guy and ran away yeah, no, it's it's got it's got that problem where where murder has been very heavily introduced as a as a, a regular serious element that takes place in the game, and that's not always the case with the uh, the source material for this game. Uh, notably, you don't usually kill the villains in a teenage game or a teenage world. Shira doesn't go off and actually kill Hordak. If Hordak dies, he does it to himself. He presses a button, even though he knows it'll blow up if he presses it. He's just that mad. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just I feel like that little bit of it kind of misses the uh, the genre mark, at least as far as I, I would be looking around for sources of inspiration. Right. Yeah. So that would be my least favorite thing. Would you play this game? Yeah, sure. I would. Uh, I definitely play this. I mm-hmm. I enjoy the idea of having a weird alien run around in space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to agree with you on this one. This looks like a lot of fun. It's a perfect... I've already played a game that used the same basic mechanics, and I had a good time. So, yeah, I would definitely play this game. Um, I'm glad that this is a rare game for us right now, because I actually own copies of it. Uh, normal. We've been using a lot of PDFs recently so that we can both read the book in a timely manner, since we can't see each other. Um, but this time, I actually happen to own two copies uh, and I'm just going to let you have that other one, John, so that maybe we can play this game at a convention someday when the world comes back to normal and uh, we discover that deer have reclaimed the earth. Good. Good for them. Yeah. So there you go. I would play this. In fact, I think it's a fun, interesting looking game. And hey, Renegade Games or Renegade Studios or whatever. You know, we're in San Diego, right? Why not say hi? Why not come over and say hi? Be- we're easy well, to get a hold of. There's come on over. The pandemic around. That's why not. But also... <laughs> Pandemics don't stop people from saying hi. You can hi. say hi. This is the first active game studio in San Diego that we've ever reviewed a game from, so I'm just saying. Hmm. Anyway, hey, John, maybe we should talk about our Patreon. Maybe. Why don't we do that? Go over to patreon.com slash systemmastery, folks, and support us at the $1 level, why don't you? That'll unlock the bonus content for this show right mm. here. In that show... What we'll do is we'll go and we'll make characters in the game we just reviewed. And in this case, that means we're going to go through the process. We'll make a ship and all that. Answer a bunch of questions about what it means to know each other and stories about scrapes that the two of us got into together. Uh, all that fun stuff. And it's a fun show. And you'll actually get a bunch of them. So many. I mean, we've made ov- well over 100 of those. And they'd all be there for you at the $1 pledge hmm. level. Now, there are other levels you can also pledge at. Two bucks will unlock all the Star Wars bonus content, which, again, there's more than a hundred of those, and those are fun, too. We go to Wikipedia, we find dumb stories, we tell them to each other. 
Uh, at the $5 level, you unlock a bunch more shows, our Afterthought Hidden content, and our uh, TV Mastery, which is John's Movie Mastery adjacent podcast, where we review TV shows. So far, one TV Woo-hoo. show. So there's a lot of levels, and they're all available for you. Stop on by patreon.com slash systemmastery to find out all about that. Otherwise, you can go to our website to get the, the shows, systemmasterypodcast.com. Also, we have a book coming out real soon in December. Our second book, Dungeon Meister, will hit shelves. It is a list of cocktail recipes. Goddamn right it is. Mm-hmm. 75 nerd-themed fun time party drinks. When we wrote it, it, quarantine was already in swing. We did not expect it to still be in swing. So while it would be great for a party, right now you should buy it to drink the pain and <laughs> drink the pain away. Do both. No, just drink the pain. Just drink T-Pain. So there you have that. That's our cool book. John also has a book out. That's uh, Abandoned. Find that on itch.io. It is a role-playing game about uh, haunted amusement parks that uses a deck of cards and a (laughs) jack-o'-lantern. Jack in the box, but yes. No, it uses a jack-o'-lantern because it's (laughs) Ween right now. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Great. Thanks. Sorry. I'm doing my best. I just forgot which one was which. It's a cool, cool game that John wrote, and it's awesome. I'm a fan. Uh, and that should be just about all the wrap-up we need to do. So, as always, I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you have a happy rest of your ween. You know, the last part of the ween is the happiest part, yeah. after all. Once you get to the the base of the ween, then you're, you're golden. Mm-hmm. That's where you measure from to determine how happy you are exactly. at ween time. You measure from the base. Yeah. So so there you have it. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you in a couple weeks of more System Mastery. You all have a good one. Hang on, there's something in the back room. Hope it's not Those assholes, Jeff and John. You used to read me stories as if my dreams were boring. We all know it's time for we. Yeah.